decision to finally just leave my church, I didn't realize how painful it was going to be. Welcome to How to Grieve, the podcast all about grief and grieving. My name is Tiffany. I am your host. And this week I have Michelle on the podcast. And she was born and raised in Florida. She went to UCF for her BA in English Literature. A few months after graduating, she started a program to receive her master's in clinical mental health counseling. I have learned so much from her, specifically in that field. She graduated last year in the spring of 2020 and has been providing individual and group therapy to people in the state of Florida. Um, Outside of her professional life, she enjoys reading and writing and crafting um, and is a huge advocate for social justice and advocacy. (laughs) Above all of these things that she has done, my favorite thing about her is that she's my friend. Um, She and I knew who is I I guess one of the reasons that this podcast even exists. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. We did kind of start off from the lens of like, well, no one is talking about COVID. Let's talk about it from a professional standpoint. And then we realized that that's actually really hard to do because I feel like COVID is going to need to be studied on a sociological level, like (laughs) overall. So we really got into talking about our grief with losing and Michelle's role as a therapist and how all of these things have kind of led her to where she is now. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. She's one of my favorite people on earth. Let's get into it. Hello. Hi. Well, um, so I wanted to have you on. Um, because of your expertise, also because you're my friend. <laughs> but yeah, so we are going to be talking about COVID. Yeah. Which is the worst ongoing year ever, mm-hmm. which is now two years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you do and how that's been effective since everything hit the fan. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So right now um, I am a registered mental health counselor intern in the state of Florida. Um, So that is a very long way of saying that I am a therapist who is working towards licensure. I am post-grad. And so that's what I do right now. I have clients I meet with weekly and I help them navigate their issues and meet their goals and things like that. Um, So how it's been affected, it's been affected a lot. Um, You know, I was in grad school for three years, um, training how to do face-to-face therapy. I did my third year internship on a college campus and all of my clients were face-to-face. And then I was set to graduate in May of 2020 and probably, I would say like end of March. Yeah, end of March. Um, That's when we were getting noticed that like, hey, some things might be changing on the campus. We might be sending some students home. We'll give them a choice, things like that. And then that's when we were pretty much told like the beginning of April, like, Hey, we're kind of shutting this down. You're pretty much done with your internship. And I didn't get to like terminate with my clients properly. I really didn't get to say goodbye Mm -hmm. to them or help them sort of process like where, like where they started and and where they were ending. I didn't get to do that. And so it, it changed the course of my training in the sense that like now everything was moving to telehealth. And I just spent the last pretty much three years learning how to do everything I was trained to do face to face. 
And you would think that, oh, like, what's the difference? It's just, you know, I'm so face to face and just over a camera, mm-hmm. but it is very different. Mm-hmm. Just in the sense that like, for instance, I am trained that when I'm sitting across from somebody, I'm not just hearing what they're saying, but I'm taking into account their body language. I'm taking into account eye movement and like very subtle differences. And mm-hmm. that can be difficult to do over telehealth because I can't see the whole person. Mm-hmm. So that's just one instance where it's changed a lot. And then, you know, graduation was virtual. And so didn't get the graduation I thought I would get. And then, um, you know, began the job searching process, found a job about two and a half months later. And with that, I got hired at this agency and I started working for them completely virtually. Everything was remote. Mm-hmm. I didn't meet my coworkers until I want to say March of this year. Wow. Um, that's when I finally... How long have you been working there? I'm still there now. I've been working there since uh, late August of 2020. Yeah. So you didn't meet your coworkers for like nine months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had only mm-hmm. seen them over Zoom. Like we had like staff meetings and mm-hmm. I would see them on Zoom. And so it was actually pretty funny because when we showed up, we they started implementing like monthly gatherings so that we could meet each other um, when everyone started getting vaccinated and stuff. And mm-hmm. I remember walking into the office and looking at someone and saying, you're so much taller than I thought because I've only seen you from like 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 the chest up for like nine months um so there were people that like you know we got to know each other there were people I'm like yeah you you your height is throwing me off right now Mm -hmm. so so that was fun yeah and Mm so and then so now I've just started transitioning back into doing some face-to-face sessions with clients which is an adjustment because I've been doing therapy over you know Zoom and and other platforms since pretty much like April of 2020. Wow. So over a year, a year Mm -hmm. and a half. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's, yeah. I actually, my current therapist, I've Mm -hmm. never met her in person. And so Mm -hmm. she like Mm -hmm. is keeping the telehealth model. Yeah. Um, And so I can't even imagine like, because sometimes she will kind of be like, oh, I can see you better now. Or like, like <laughs> she's just like waiting. Uh-huh. My, I've had, I've gone to therapy for 10 years and that's so true. Yeah. Like the nuances of like, you're mm-hmm. holding your breath right now. Yeah. And you're like, those things matter so much mm-hmm. when you're going. Yeah. So I can't even imagine like having to figure out those nuances when you're the therapist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about how you've kind of seen the general population shift mm-hmm. because um, a lot more people are seeking therapy now because yeah. 2020 was so rough. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason I have a new therapist because my old therapist was booked. Like everyone was just making appointments, Yeah, which I guess is good for you in a way because mm-hmm. it's your first year and you're, you have steady clientele, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. How have you seen that that's really affected people? Um, I've seen it mostly affect people in a positive way. Obviously, COVID is awful and it has destroyed so many lives. And at the same time, it has allowed access for people who normally wouldn't have access to things like therapy. Because we've experienced, like, for instance, like some insurance companies have given waivers where clients don't have a copay and they've been able to seek therapy for months without having a copay because of COVID. I didn't know that. Yeah. Or like, um, 
because, you know, most therapists pre-COVID were only obviously treating people face-to-face and majority of the time those people were from the area that you lived in. But because of COVID and everything moving to telehealth um, and because the way licensing works, licensing isn't just your area, it's across your state. So mm-hmm. like I've had clients who have lived across the state, up and down the state because they found, you know, our agency's website and they were able to find a therapist. Like, I think I will click with this person and then reach out to us. And as long as they live in the state of Florida, you can see any therapist. So it's mm-hmm. expanded the ability to maybe seek trauma therapy because maybe you don't have a good trauma therapist in your area or seek out a certain modality that you want to experience. Like for instance, my agency, um, they specialize in DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and it's, it's used a lot for people who've been living with um, BPD, which is borderline personality disorder and some other things too, but it was, it really works well for people who are living with borderline personality disorder um, in central Florida, at least. We're one of the very few agencies that offer like a full model DBT. But Mm. if you lived here, you had access to that. If you lived across the state, you wouldn't have access to that. And now because of telehealth, there's people who are able to access that who normally wouldn't have been able to. So at least in the, in the realm of therapy, it's been, it's been beneficial to people. Now, when you expand that, obviously it's been detrimental. Like there are some of my clients I've worked with where, um, they're not just experiencing like one loss, like maybe like the loss of a job, they're experiencing the loss of a job and a family member and like a transitional thing where now they're like home all the time, maybe with like a partner that they didn't spend a lot of time with. And now they have to learn to cultivate that relationship that had been neglected. But how do you do that while you're managing all this other chaos going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you put children in the mix who are home because they can't go to school. So it's in the beginning, back when I first started working for the agency, getting my, um, caseload of clients, a lot of my clients were in a lot of distress. Um, and so we had to work through that and like ultimately working through the grieving process because grief isn't just death, it's the loss of something and everybody lost something to COVID. Yeah, that's so true. I want to talk about this mm-hmm. because I personally only experienced a small percentage of that loss. Yeah. And I think that when we look at just numbers online, like the CDC, like Mm -hmm. covered 100,000 people died. And I think it's up to like 500,000 people. Um, If we don't actually discuss like the personal level of it, I Mm -hmm. feel like it just kind of becomes a passing thought. Like it's not something that is true for you in your everyday life, Mm -hmm. but it should be like, this is, this is something that has affected 500,000 families. Yeah. And so I, if you're able to, would, would want to hear a little bit about like the conversations that you've had and, um, a little bit more detail on how you personally have been affected by hearing those stories. Mm -hmm. Um, because we need to be affected by them. Yeah, that's been hard because in a lot of ways, when I've met with like, when I've met with a client who maybe was furloughed from their job and they already were in a maybe dicey relationship with someone that they live with. And then because they're furloughed, they're home all the time and they don't have an out or they don't feel like they have an out of that situation because where are they going to go? And then I'm meeting with them weekly and there's only so much I can do. 
like for me personally, a lot of not, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a bit of the work I've done with some clients where I personally felt helpless in that moment because I don't know what to do. All I know how to do is be here and listen and try to empathize with you and help you sort through your feelings about this and find ways to cope better than the way you're currently coping with it. And so for me personally, it's been helpless, but I know that, you know, even more so it's been super like that helpless feeling has been like magnified for the client I'm working with. Yeah, that is awful. (laughs) Cause I, I want to expand on it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find the words to expand on it because it's almost like our collective grief exists and no one knows what to do with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like we're just kind of here we are in this thing that we didn't expect and we didn't know would happen. And yeah, from a little bit of my perspective, just because that's what I know Mm -hmm. and maybe it can lead somewhere. Um, I personally worked in insurance in a field that was basically pandemic proof. So none of us lost our jobs. Mm-hmm. But we were there day in and day out as people were calling us, telling us they couldn't pay their bill yeah, and um, getting verbally abused on the phone just because people didn't know how to handle not being able to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. And there was only so much we could do because as an organization, I guess as a company, mm-hmm. our company was only like allowing people... Um, a certain amount of time to be able to get their bills paid and like yeah. a certain amount of money was being refunded mm-hmm. and it wasn't as much as other companies were giving. And um, up until I want to say like March of this year, I had a couple customers who owed like three grand in wow. like their car insurance mm-hmm. and they had to leave our company because like, who can pay three grand in car insurance? Nobody. Yeah. And his monthly bill was like $700. I feel like it was really high. Yeah. And I just like, these are the things that you don't see on the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I can be on Twitter all day, but I don't know the real impact of Mm -hmm. what's going on. So have you seen, I guess like, it's been super beneficial for people to be going to therapy, but have you seen any like lasting effects from what they went through in the height of lockdown into now where things are a little bit more free and in Florida, like things Mm -hmm. are kind of normal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I have, because a lot of kids, you know, if, if you are, you know, any of your listeners have been in therapy for any length of time, you know, progress is slow. And so because of that, it is hard for me to gauge like, okay, I know how you were when you came in, but Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out where are you now? Because things seem to be turning around for you a little bit. Like you're not furloughed anymore. You're becoming more assertive in the relationship. Now you are, um, having more patience with your children, um, and, and being able to like communicate with them and not just like yell at them all the time because they're children and that's what children do. They yell and you don't need to yell back. And mm-hmm. so, um, so like, those are like the small things I've been able to see. And so for the most part, I haven't really seen, at least from my perspective, it's probably different for, you know, host of other therapists. 
I've seen most of my clients being able to improve from where they were to where they are now. I haven't really seen any hangups that were existing at the height of COVID that they were coming in with like a lot of like the, the grief of all the loss that even if like things haven't turned around in, in the sense of like, I have a great job now, I have a great relationship, all those things, they feel better because they were able to sit across from somebody and feel heard and feel seen and feel cared for. Um, like I had a, a professor in grad school who told us like at the end of the day, like regardless of like the type of therapy you do, the modality and, and anything, like your clients want to know that you see them and that you hear them and that you care about them. And if you have those three things down, like they'll keep showing up because they don't have that anywhere else. So yeah. Um, but that's at least just what I've been able to see with my clients as they try to process not only like their own stuff, but being like how you were saying, like this collective grief. Yeah. So for you, um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to start talking about you because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just easier. <laughs> I feel like to actually, um, yeah. So what made you want to be a therapist? And I know a little bit about this story mm-hmm. because we're friends. Yeah. Um, but what made you like stick it out through <laughs> this? <laughs> when you say this, you mean stick it out like through the pandemic and stuff or just Yeah. Okay. Through the pandemic, through all the schooling, through Yeah. The collective shit show that all of this was. <laughs> so um I wouldn't in- advise anybody to do this if, regardless of like what sort of grad school you plan to go to. I honestly kind of just jumped into it. Um I recently had an old professor say, so you didn't know what you were getting yourself into. And I said, absolutely not. I did not know. Um, I was like in my spring semester of my senior year of undergrad and I needed to make a decision of what I was going to do. I was an English major with a minor in education, but I always had an interest in mental health. That was something I'd always had just because of my own history with mental health. And so I ended up going to like an open house for my grad school and I really liked the model and the way they had set up the program where there was a really big emphasis and focus on social justice and advocacy, which I didn't see in any other programs, which most counseling programs do focus on that. But the fact that my program was like, no, this is like a tenet of our program. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew that's where I wanted, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do social justice work. So um, it was very easy for me to make that decision that I was going to be a counselor because like counselors can do that sort of work. Um, So I applied with a month and a half left um, in their deadline process. And I, like, after I went to the open house, I took the GRE a week later and then I, um, was sure I was not going to get in and I did. Um, and the, you studied for the GRE. I studied like very, very, <laughs> like, I honestly, I don't that remember. Opening a book. Me. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't remember opening a GRE book. I think I did some like small tests online. I was not prepared. Um, I guess I did okay on it because I got into the program, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I guess I met their standards. Um, and I started and I graduated in, uh, the spring of 2017 and then fall 2017, I started the program. Um, and it was really, really great because I was in a co, it was a cohort model. So like the people Mm -hmm. I started with were the people I graduated with and, um, and going through the program was very difficult because my program also had like, they really made sure that like we understood what it would be like to be a client. So like we were required, we had to go to 10 counseling sessions ourselves within the first year of our program. Um, we had to 
engage in group therapy, but as clients. And so they really wanted With, to- like your professors? No, they actually brought in like, like um, former students who were, okay. who needed like hours towards their license and like that counted like as hours. That's cool. So yeah, so they weren't our professors, thank God, because I don't know if I could have <laughs> opened up like that in front of my, prof- my first year <laughs> professor. Um, but yeah, it was, and so we did that. And um, the internship was difficult because of all the hours you have to get and all the supervision you have to do. And, and it's scary because it's like this person is coming to you for answers. And I'm like, I'm a person just like you. Like, mm-hmm. but I can, but I can be human with you. I can sit here and listen to you and be human with you. And I might have some tricks that I've learned along the way that I can help you with. But I think it's just like sitting across with another person who wants to hear you. Like they want to know what you have to say and they want to know how you feel. Mm-hmm. So that's been the most rewarding yeah. part. Yeah. That's super powerful to just be able to open up and mm-hmm. be seen and not only be seen, but almost be studied, like yeah. to where mm-hmm. you can actually grow instead of just like having a conversation. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about like your experiences with grief mm-hmm. and where you feel like the first time you ever felt it was. Yeah. So I think the first time I ever felt grief, I was probably in second or third grade and it was uh my aunt passed away suddenly and um and my family is very large uh I have a lot of aunts I have a lot of uncles and cousins and we're all very very close and um this aunt was sort of like the matriarch of our family and even as a small child, I, I obviously didn't know the term matriarch, but I knew she was important. She was an important person in our family. And she went, I think, for a routine kind of thing, and she died. Um, and I remember, like, the week-long, like, process of everybody coming into town and, like, grieving that and going to her funeral. And I can still remember seeing her, like, in her casket. And, like, I remember all of that so vividly. Um, and as a kid, I think at that point I had sort of, I was able to process the fact that like, okay, so everybody's sad. There's this thing that happens. I don't think she's coming back. Um, but I, and I remember crying, but I don't know if I made the connection yet. Then at some point I figured out, Oh, she's not coming back. But like I cried because everybody else is crying, but I don't think Mm -hmm. I understood. Like I'm crying because this person is gone and I'm not going to see them again. Hmm. Um, even though you saw her in the casket yeah yeah I feel like I didn't make that connection because I because I I haven't talked about this in a long time so I don't so I'm like trying to process that like right now as we're talking like wait I saw her in the casket but it just didn't click with me yet and then I think and then Mm -hmm. like you know later on I I developed like death anxiety because like seeing all of that because I then um had a lot of other family members die like I had a cousin die some years later actually I was in high school I had a cousin die and then a week later an uncle died and um and I had just seen that uncle so Mm -hmm. and then you know having other family members along the way who died I've been to a lot of funerals so that's where a lot of the death anxiety came from. So I can remember as a 10 year old being terrified of it and, you know, going to check and make sure people in my house are still breathing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like at some point, I feel like every kid goes through a little bit of that because you realize that like, we don't live forever. And, and also 
that grief is a part of life. Like loss is a part of life. Mm-hmm. It's oh, that's so weird because I was just talking to someone a couple days ago mm-hmm. and we feel like it's rare. <laughs> like, like grief work is like uh-huh. for like kids and old people and like mm-hmm. what, like teens and twenties, thirties, yeah. it's kind of like, there's n- not very much information out there. Like mm-hmm. not very many resources that aren't like, I don't know, like sanitized or old feeling. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you had so much experience with grief mm-hmm. so young. Yeah. I, it seems to me, I don't know the numbers. I should look them up. I'm not a professional, everyone. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to grieve everybody. Um, but yeah, I just feel like it. there's not very much resources out there. And it's not mm-hmm. like as common for young people to experience so much loss. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you had like conversations with people as things were happening that kind of helped you along like the process of figuring it out or were you just kind of observing everything? I think I was just observing everything. Um, I didn't have my first experience in therapy until I was like, I don't know, within my first one one or two years of undergrad. And even then it, it had nothing to do with grief, not in the sense that most people think about grief work. So yeah, I, I don't think anybody really talked to me. It was it was more of me trying to figure it out by myself and navigate those feelings and like having to name them because a lot of times I I've experienced this with like friends, but also with clients of like we feel something but we're not able to name it. But if you can't name mm-hmm. the feeling, you can't address it. Which is why if you've ever been to therapy, your therapist probably has like a feelings wheel and they pull it out yeah. and they say, okay, pinpoint the feeling. I need to know. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you have to like go mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> down into it. Yeah. Maybe I'll post it. But it's like, yeah, a feelings wheel is like, is it the center? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the center mm-hmm. has just like basic emotions like anger, sad, mm-hmm. um, happy, whatever. And then it has concurrent circles that get more and more specific yeah. as the circles mm-hmm. get bigger. Yeah. Um, they're usually pretty colorful, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> which I like, but yeah, so I need those in my life. Cause I am always like, I'm feeling all of the feelings everywhere mm-hmm. and I don't know what they are. So feeling feelings, wheels are wonderful. Um, so, okay. So we've talked about your experience with grief in like the sense of death. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like you've had an experience with grief outside of that? Which I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I would definitely say, okay, so I'm going to talk about that. So, Mm -hmm. but also like, it's another like death grief. So as you know, we had a shared mentor. It's what, four years now, I think. So, Mm -hmm. um, so was our mentor for many years. I met her when I think I was 19 or 20 and, um, I still remember vividly, I was at a woman's conference at our church and I walked up to her and I said, I want you to be my mentor. And she was like, I think she cried and she was like, <laughs> would she always cried about everything? Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, she cried and she was like, me? And I was like, yes, you. Of course. <laughs> and um, 
And I remember too, her telling me that like, she actually, she went to my mom because she like, you know, she like adored my mom and she went to my mom and she was like talking about it. Cause obviously she's like, okay, you have a mom though. Like, you know, mm-hmm. she didn't want to step on toes. And my mom looked at her and my mom said, yeah, she has a mom, but I'm her mom. Like she needs mm-hmm. someone who's not her mom. And so then became my mentor and she literally became like a second mom to me. And she would always tell me like, yeah, like you're, you're a third, your dad's and a third, your mom, but you're like a third mine. And she consistently mm-hmm. told me that all the time. And then, you know, she got sick in 2017. She got sick because I was graduating from my undergrad and she was also very supportive of me going through school because she knew how hard school was for me. And so it was, it was the, the grief and loss of losing her, like what, like I think six months later, but also the fact that she was not able to watch as I accomplished all these things. Like when I got it, when I applied for grad school, she was already sick. When I got into grad school, she was in the hospital. When I graduated from college, she was on her way into hospice. So it was like she wasn't able to be there to see all these accomplishments because she was on the front end of it all. Like they're crying with me and trying to get through all the stuff I had to do, but she didn't get to see like the, like the fruit of that. Mm-hmm. So it was like losing her, but also losing the opportunity to celebrate with her. Yeah. That was hard. Um, and you yeah. were the first one, like you were arguably the closest one to her out of all of us. Cause like if you had not asked her to be, your mentor, she would not have been mine. Yeah. So I'm really grateful because I, yeah, we all know. <laughs> we all know. Yeah. Well, I guess not all of us. <laughs> <laughs> there are listeners who do not know, but yes. um, you can share if you mm-hmm. want, like if there were any memories of her that really stick out to you that are like a pinnacle of who she was. Yeah. I'm trying to think there's like so many. She like, I know you probably know she was like a big gift giver. Like I, and the thing is, it was like, if I texted her, cause I probably hung out with her like once every two weeks or something. And so she'd be like, Oh, I'm just going to run errands. You want to go with me? You know, whatever. And I'm like, mm-hmm. anytime spent with you is a good time. So yes, I will go pay bills with you. I will mm-hmm. run to the post office with you. Um, and so like, I remember one of the first times we hung out, we went to TJ Maxx and she was browsing some like mugs and she was like, do you like this mug? And I was like, yeah, it's okay. I like it. It's okay. And so she like bought it, whatever. And then she drove me back to my house. She dropped me off and I was about to get out of the car and she reached into her backseat and she pulled out this mug and she was like, here you go. And I still have this mug and I actually keep it in my room because somebody dropped it and they, there's a little tiny chip on it, but it didn't break. But, oh my gosh, that's but like, this is the mug from TJ Maxx. Mm. And so I don't know if you see that little tiny chip in there. So no, I don't oh, you didn't see it. I even notice it. <laughs> it's so tiny, but I think it gives a character. So that's okay. Yes. Um, but yeah, like, like character. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like small gestures like that. Like she was always about the small gestures. She, and she didn't rush you. Like there were times I got in so much trouble because yes. I would be at her house until two in the morning. Oh yeah, and we weren't doing anything but talking. We were just talking Literally. all night. And my yep. parents would be like, "What it was like are 3 you doing?" Yeah, they're like, "What are you doing there?" I'm like, "We literally ate pizza, ate some brownies, <laughs> and we lost track of time. I don't know what to tell you." Like, <laughs> my mom would call us like cussing us out. Like, <laughs> are 
love you. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes we would just spend the night because we're like, yeah, you know, and I lived like 10 minutes from her house, but like, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But yeah, so, but she, and I think that was the thing that I appreciate about her probably the most is that she did not rush you. Like she gave you the time you needed until she felt like, okay, you're good now. Like you, you can walk on your own. You're okay. Um, That's so true. Yeah. She was very patient. Yeah. I don't think I ever articulated it like that. Mm-hmm. I always felt like you would just walk in and she mm-hmm. could like feel your temperature. Like yeah. she would just uh-huh. like know where you were at. Yeah. And if I would come into her house with anxiety, like mm-hmm. anxious, she would just like give me a minute to just sit there. Like you would yeah. just sit. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't need to say anything. She would just put the blanket over me, sit next to me, mm-hmm. just kind of pat my leg. And that's it. She didn't need to say anything and she knew it. Like she knew that the gift of presence was so valuable. Yeah. Like was the therapist that I needed. Like she absolutely was like, she wasn't trained in it. She didn't know about like different techniques and stuff, but she had developed her own technique and it worked Mm -hmm. for her. Yeah. She really had. Do you think that some of that informs what you do now? Definitely. Yeah. I think a lot of her patients and trying to see other points of view and take those into consideration and like the offering up of yourself to just be there. And like you were saying, like, just be present. Like she didn't have to say anything. And I'd use silence a lot with my clients um, because I mean, it's something that we're taught, but it really is effective when there's like something super kind of heavy in the room and you both can feel it. Like nobody has to say anything. We could just sit in silence for a while and that's okay. Yeah. I haven't talked about her in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I talk about her pretty frequently, actually. But I think it's, like, my way of making up for lost time. Mm -hmm. Because I got, like, the least amount of time with her. Yeah. So I was gone for, like, the last bit of her life. And I was also, like, like, I don't know very much about her. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like, I guess you do, <laughs> but like, I, I personally don't know very much about her. I learned so much about her at her funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just a testament to the kind of person she was. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I wish I would have taken the time to know her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so young. I like met her when I was like 16 or 17. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she died when I was 21. Yeah. And at 21, I was, like, just starting to, like, be a person, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, like, didn't have a personality before that or something. <laughs> like, that's just – I just feel like it's all a fog. It's all just a big blur. Mm-hmm. But she – yeah, she just took the time to know me. And I wish I would have done that for her. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. – and the vein of like the other question. So like, that's still like a death loss. And so mm-hmm. in the sense of like a loss that wasn't necessarily a death, but you know, lost something and grieved it was probably like just the experience of like leaving the church that I grew up in and mm-hmm. losing that community and losing those people. Cause it was still around for that. And so, you know, talking yeah. about that with her and processing that with her, I, I didn't realize when I made the decision to finally just leave my church, I didn't, realize how painful it was going to be. 
I was not prepared for that. I'd watched other people leave and I knew it was hard for them. And, you know, I would sit there and I would listen to them and listen to them talk about the difficulty of it, but I wasn't there yet. And Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that until I was actually going through it. And I was like, Oh wait, this is what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, probably. So like I left my church probably in like December, the last Sunday of 20, I want to say 15 was my last Sunday there. Yeah. Cause I remember I was like, okay, I'm going to finish up the year. And then if I'm still feeling this way, I'm just going to leave. And I'm still feeling that way by the last Sunday. And so that I remember walking out of the doors, getting in my car and leaving and knowing that was going to be my last time ever there. Um, Mm -hmm. and so then, you know, in January until like the end of that semester, um, I was still in school. I was an undergrad and because I was a commuter student, I was going to UCF and I commuted because I only lived about 45 minutes away. It was really hard to meet people. Obviously, as a commuter student, it's hard to be involved in things. And so even though I've been there for already, like, I think two years, I had a small group of friends. I could probably count them on one hand. And I wasn't able to be involved, be, in, be involved in as much as I wanted to. So I was extremely lonely from the sense that I didn't have a lot of school friends. But then also leaving the church I was in for over 10 years... I was, I lost all those people too. So then the next six months after the leave was probably one of the most depressing times in my life outside of high school because I didn't have anybody and the people I did have didn't completely understand why I was leaving and Mm -hmm. they didn't necessarily agree with it, but they, but they loved me. So they were like, okay, well, like we're here for you, even though we don't necessarily agree with it. Um, and so, um, so that like navigating that and navigating the loss of community and then not knowing when I would get another community was really, mm-hmm. really hard. Um, I spent a lot of time alone and um, trying to figure out like, what is my next move? What, I'm, what am I going to do? Which is why I ended up joining. Uh, I joined a Christian sorority when I, within that like next semester, like of my senior year, because I was like, okay, I want community, but it ended up not panning out the way I thought it would either. So that was another loss of another community of people that I thought I would have. And it wasn't until I went to grad school and I joined like my cohort. And because we, the beauty of that was because we were all there at that specific program, we were all there with the same values. Like we all thought social justice was important. We all thought um, people's feelings mattered and that people matter. Um, And so it was very easy for me to connect with them because we all kind of had those same foundational values And then being with them, going through the same stress and classes and program for the next three years, I got extremely close to them. And so then I was like, this is my new community. And even though now that we've like graduated and we're kind of spread out, we still talk all the time. We still hang out when we can. And I still feel just as close to them as I did when we were actually in school going through that process. Yeah, there's like a, a depth of connection that you build with them, right? Because you're going to group yeah. therapy together. You're yeah. Mm-hmm. Studying all of these things and exploring different ideas together. Mm-hmm. There's a vulnerability there that I guess that's something that was almost fabricated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to diss anyone at our old church, but yeah. when you really experience vulnerability and connection with people, mm-hmm. it's just different than than what we had before. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about like what was going through your head. Like I'm finishing out the end of the year. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm leaving. Yeah. Like 
how did you arrive at that? How were you feeling? Were your hands shaking? Were you sweating? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Because, <laughs> like, the thing is, I, you know, even before I went to that church, I grew up in the church before that. I was, like, born in the church. And then we found this new church when I was, like, in sixth grade. So then I was there from... 11 until I was like, I think I was like 22 or 23 or something. So it was like all of my socialization, all of my opinions and values all came through the lens of that. And so the idea of leaving was terrifying because I'm like, I don't know anything else. I don't know anything outside of this. Um, and, um, it was probably like, okay. So I said that like end of 2015 is when I left. So probably like the summer of 2015 mm-hmm. is probably when I started thinking like, yeah, I, I need to make some transitional moves here because um, I I think that summer there have been some police involved shooting or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember exactly which one, which is awful because there's so many, I just can't get them straight. And so- um, Especially in the town we grew up in. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, never mind. But- <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have an embarrassing story to share about that one. So bad. Oh, maybe I'll have an equal one because, uh, yeah. So <laughs> there was something, and it was I. I remember what it is. Not Jesus. Okay. It was that summer. Something happened with a police-involved shooting, and I can remember I was sitting in the back row of the sanctuary, and I remember looking up as someone on leadership decided to do a police lives matter slide on a Sunday morning and it showcased the police families in the congregation, which, okay, you're going to do that. But what about the other side of this, of this thing, which is black lives matter and why that even, why that even came about and how am I as a black member of your church supposed to feel when I'm sitting in your congregation and I see that I don't know. And I felt awful like I felt like I didn't matter. Um, I didn't feel seen. And there were other instances where I was approached by people because of things I maybe had said that were uh, maybe too radical for them because they were very like, mm-hmm. you know, supportive of black people because, you know, hello, I'm black. So mm-hmm. um, between that one instance on that Sunday morning and a couple of other things, I was like, yeah, it's time for me to get on up out of here because this is not working. And the only reason I ended up staying was because I was asked to um, kind of take over an outreach thing that we did every fall that my mom actually was in charge of, but my mom had left maybe a year or two prior to that um, for her own reasons, but she left as well. And um, they, because I worked so closely with my mom doing this, they asked me to do it. And I was still very much like, good Christian girl. I'm going to say yes. When my leadership asked me to do stuff, I'm not going to question them. And so I said, yes. And so I did this whole thing. And then afterwards, you know, as they do when you're over an event and then things die down, you're suddenly not relevant or needed anymore. So, um, I stayed through the December holiday stuff. And then that's when I was like, yeah, this is, this is my out. I, and at that point I wasn't doing anything anymore besides like that outreach thing. Like I wasn't serving any group, like nothing. Which to be clear Mm -hmm. is a very like involved thing. Yeah. It takes up a lot of time, Mm -hmm. a lot of organizing, a lot of yourself was put into this thing. Yeah. It, It wasn't like a, Oh, I'm planning this little, <laughs> this little gathering. It's oh, like, no. a, it's a large outreach. 
Yeah, I think we when my mom would run it, she started like probably a couple days before Halloween, but really it was like, you know, November 1st, the day after Halloween, it's like when she would really start to like plan and get things in motion, even though the outreach wasn't until like the last week of, of November. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a lot of time and a lot of planning and she wasn't there anymore. And so I took on the role of doing that and organizing and making phone calls and getting volunteers organized and like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. And, and then I was just like, I'm not really doing much. I'm not serving really. I'm not doing leader. I'm not doing leadership. I'm not doing youth group. I'm not doing any of that stuff. So why am I, why am I still here? Mm -hmm. So yeah. And, and so it was, it was easy in the moment to decide that that was my last Sunday, but it was like afterwards, that's when I was like, what did I do? Because then that's when I was like, you know, I still, cause the thing is when I left, I still had my like core group of friends. I still had those people. Um, Mm -hmm. but they didn't understand me. And I think that was the hardest part. Like they didn't understand why I left. They didn't understand that I was hurting. I got a lot of messaging from people like, it's okay if you don't go to our church, but you still need to be part of a church. And I'm like, but like, I was in a relationship with a lot of different people. That's like telling somebody who was, you know, in a really committed relationship with someone and they broke up, that it's okay if you're not with them anymore, but you need to get back out into the dating world. You can't sulk forever. I would never tell one of my clients that I would never tell anybody that I would say, you take the time you need to heal. And then you jump back in when you're ready. It's not going anywhere. Church wasn't going anywhere. Go ahead. I would have never put those things together and being Mm. someone who also left, right? Like I have experienced similar feelings Mm -hmm. and I would have never put those things together. I was always like, well, you know, they have a point. I'm just going to avoid the topic. (laughs) I'm just going to like do my best to not listen (laughs) to them talk to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Wow. Like you're in a bunch of individual relationships with people. Yeah. And for a long time. Yes. Like it was a yeah. long-term relationship yes. with many people. And there was a breakup. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So tell us a little bit about like, I guess those, those breakup feelings, right? Like you made the decision mm-hmm. to break up and yeah. now what do you do? You're like, Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> here mm-hmm. I am I'm like on this island it felt like I was on an island by myself yeah. like and I knew other people who had left and I still talked to them but the thing is like they were so because they had left so um much sooner than I did they were so mm-hmm. far ahead in their journey of being out of the church that yeah, I could I few years yeah like I couldn't even relate to them because I was so far out or they were so far out mm-hmm. ahead of me um mm-hmm. and so honestly you know I you know we talked we've talked about like the the concept of like deconstructing, which is essentially trying to um, take the messaging that you've learned, especially in a religious context, taking those messages and really breaking it down and literally, quite literally deconstructing them to figure out like, what about this is actually true? And what about this was indoctrination? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, things like that. And my first experience with that was really from you because really you, yeah, it was, I don't think I ever told you that, but it was, it was really you who started me on that journey because mm-hmm. you sent me that podcast from, um, the liturgist and it was the mm-hmm. ethics of fucking. And I, you sent me that yeah. first one and then I listened to part two and then I binged all the other ones and I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, what is this? And then I, I found out there was like a liturgist community 
And I joined the community and I started connecting with other people who had also been through the exact same thing I had all over the country and all over the world. Some of them I actually talk to still today and I'm still friends with them like on Facebook and Instagram. We interact with each other. Um, But like I started realizing I wasn't the only one who went through this outside Mm -hmm. of my city. I wasn't the only one who was going through similar things. And so like I've had to deconstruct, which is another form of grief and loss. I've had to deconstruct and, and take these things I was taught by people who love me. But at the end of the day, I had to come to this realization of like, they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Like they were wrong. Like all of these things I'm learning about, like the Bible and, and church history and just the history of the Bible, how it was created and the people who were listed in it. And even interpretation of scripture of like everybody's interpretation is so different. So who's to say who's actually right? And so I think to be honest, I think now in my um, spirituality, like I feel closer to like the divine now than I ever did as an actual like label Christian. I feel more free. And honestly, the moment I probably felt the most free was when I went to yoga for the first time, which, you know, yoga was like, you don't do yoga. Um, I went to yoga. I remember talking about that yeah. and people would always just like give me a look and be mm-hmm. like, oh, Tiffany, you run along. Like- <laughs> yeah, I remember somebody said like, don't, they're like, oh, they're going to have you open like your third eye. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. So I guess I will stay away from that. Um, <laughs> but like, it was when I was in grad school, I had some of my friends were like, hey, we're going to go to Orlando downtown on Sunday to do like yoga in the park. And I went with them and, um, the last, uh, like pose that they have us do every single time is uh, Shavasana where you just lay, you know, and you just lay there and you breathe and you experience the breathing. And I remember laying on my mat and it was like super sunny. My eyes were closed, but you know, you can see like, you know, like the sun coming through your eyelids and stuff. And I remember it felt like I could feel the earth breathing. It was Mm. wild. And in that moment, it was like, I could feel everything so heightened. And I was like, I feel God right now. Like I'm in yoga and I feel God. And I was like, this, this is it. Like, this is, (laughs) this is my religion. This is what, you know, like I don't need to be, and I know people are going to disagree with this probably. I don't need to be part of a church to feel God and to experience God. I'm sorry, but I just don't because I've experienced him outside of that in other places but you can't tell me otherwise. Yeah, You just can't. Yeah. But I was led to believe I could only experience God in Jesus within c- community and within the church. And I'm like, I do have community. I have community with other people who've been hurt by the church. And we've built community, not around that, but around our healing. Mm. It's not been around the hurt or the pain. It's been about how are we going to heal from the pain and hurt that was caused by people who took God and weaponized him for this. So, mm. yeah. And that's, that's like exactly what I learned as a missionary. Mm-hmm. You come back and they're trying to get you to go back in this box. And I was like, yeah. what's this? Exactly. <laughs> like, mm, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this yeah. is not it. This ain't it for me. Wow. I had a question. <laughs> I, I, it like made me emotional oh. to hear that because <laughs> it's just so it's exactly the way things should be Mm -hmm. like that grounding, like that feeling of being connected to living things and to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because like 
you said people would disagree with this. And I too, like, as you were talking, <laughs> like, you just like have the Christian rebuttals in your head still. Yes. Like that uh-huh. just like are on replay, but like, you don't necessarily believe them. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, oh, you know, that's not how <laughs> the Bible is clear. Mm-hmm. Like you just like have, I, I was just like in my brain, like people are going to say this, people are going to say this, people mm-hmm. are going to say this. My mom is going to tell me all these things. I'm going to get a call from my dad. How dare I post this on the social media? Mm-hmm. But it's just like this being connected to each other yeah, and not manipulating each other mm-hmm. into, into what we thought was love yes, or what we thought was community mm-hmm because of our trauma, like, just like you said, like that healing bond versus the trauma bond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like this is what life should be like. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit more about what that processing looked like. Mm -hmm. Cause we're, we're on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and like deconstruction, like it sounds kind of like taking apart like a Mm -hmm. kid's toy or something, Mm -hmm. but it's more like taking apart an airplane that was supposed to be a helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) That is a perfect explanation of it. Yes. Uh That's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Cause you're like, I don't know where this doohickey goes with this other thing, but I know that it shouldn't be this thing. And it's supposed to be this. I don't, Uh this doesn't feel like it goes. Yeah. (laughs) It's frustrating because it's like, okay, I've been gone from my church for, for about five and a half years now I've been gone Mm -hmm. and I am still deconstructing. I don't think there's an arrival. I think you are always deconstructing because especially if you grew up in it from a very young age, there is so much indoctrination that happened. There are so many things that you've been told to believe, but you never actually stopped for a moment and said, okay, but like, do I actually believe this? Or am I just being told to believe this? Like for instance, six months ago, I found out and I was shook, shook Tiffany when I found out that men and women have the same amount of ribs because I have been taught that men have one less rib because when God created Eve, he like as fact, yes, as fact, he took a rib from Adam to create Eve, which is why men have one less rib than what, if you have one less rib, you have a medical condition. It is not because of the Bible. Or surgically removed. Yeah, like like they're like I remember googling it, and they were like, "Yeah, you can have one less rib, but it's it's probably it's a medical condition." Um, but when I found that out, I was like, "I am 28 years old, and I am just realizing." And then and then I talked to somebody else who also was deconstructing, and they were like, "And they're a nurse, right?" And they were like, "I was in nursing school, and I found that out," and I was like. Oh. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> but I was like, but that's the, that is the level of indoctrination. And like, like even that, f- that statement you said uh, a couple of minutes ago where you're like, they're going to say, well, the Bible says this. And I'm like, but how do we know that? How do we know that's mm-hmm. true? Like the Bible also said that men have one less rib than women. And we know that's not true. And, but it was taught mm-hmm. to us as children as fact. So did the people who taught us that, did they know that wasn't true, but taught us anyway, because it was in the Bible. Did they lie to us? What was going on? They they didn't know either. Yeah. Did. No, no, they didn't. That's my thing. I'm like, either they didn't know or they lied. And I just think yeah. they didn't know because they were also taught that. Yeah. And the it's cycle like, perpetuates. Uh, Kyle, yes, Kyle told me like last year or something. It was around that time mm-hmm. that you had posted that. It yeah. was literally like a week <laughs> or so before uh-huh. or something. I think I like read it to him and then he told me. It was some, it was literally like surrounding your post. Mm-hmm. And 
he told me that the Egyptians have no record of the Exodus, mm-hmm. but and they know that they didn't just get rid of them because there's record that they tried to erase like a pharaoh that they didn't like out of history. Mm. But we like know that they tried to do that, and there's no <laughs> record of the Exodus. Huh. And they're like known for being like the first culture to really yeah. like document uh-huh. things. Is that insane? That, like <laughs> what? <laughs> like I'm telling you, deconstruction doesn't stop. It doesn't stop for it anyone. <laughs> You'll never know the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I'm like, look, I'm just in my, I'm just in my bubble. I experienced God <laughs> during yoga one time, and I'm good here. <laughs> this is home base. Yes. <sighs> But it's, but it's actually fun. Like it's actually been fun learning about like yeah. all of this stuff and actually like feeling like I'm learning the truth about these things that, you know, I was taught as a child that aren't actually completely true. So it's mm-hmm. been interesting. And it's been fun. Yeah. I was going to ask you like, if you've had like specific conversations of you, or if you remember moments like being in the initial mm-hmm. super depressing parts of it yeah I do but I wasn't deconstructing then like Hmm. yeah like because the first six months after I left like it was January of like 2016 like that Mm -hmm. from until about like the summer I was like in that depressive state where I didn't go anywhere I didn't talk to anybody I didn't go to church um anywhere I did nothing and I didn't even know deconstruction was a thing. I didn't know other people existed who were doing that. I obviously knew people Mm. left the church, but I didn't realize there was this sort of like middle ground where it was like some people leave and then they just go do their own thing. But some people leave and they, they want to unpack what they experience. And I didn't know there was that sect of people. So it wasn't until probably, I don't know when you sent me that podcast. Maybe it was like July because like you sent it to me in July of 2016 before I left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you sent it to me and I listened to that. And then throughout that fall, I had joined that Christian sorority, but I was also beginning the process of deconstructing, even though I just joined a Christian sorority. Um, And that's when I joined like the liturgist community page and started interacting with more people. And so that was when I started going through it. And, and honestly, I was was more liberated. Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. it, It really was because even when I was in that sorority, it was pretty much the same as the church I left. Like it was just full of women. Like it was, it was just a bunch of women instead of like being co-ed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, going through that. And I felt like I had language to describe what I had been through, which is really, really important. Like even in therapy, mm-hmm. it's like having language to describe what you've experienced is powerful because then you can use that language to then use your voice to speak out about whatever it was that you experienced. And so like, there's a quote, um, cause there's actually, you know, lots of, uh, what do you call them, organizations now that are looking at deconstructing and looking at that like topic. And so one of them is the, uh, religious trauma Institute. And so one of the co-founders, Brian Peck, he had this quote where he's like, the body doesn't speak in languages, it speaks in sensations. And so it was like, I had all these sensations, but I didn't have the language to describe it. But when I met other people who had deconstructed and they were like, well, this is what this means. And this is what, you know, I've experienced. And this is a lot of times what this points to. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I finally know what I'm experiencing now. I just didn't have language before. So tell us a little bit about that, about what you felt in your body Mm. as you were Mm -hmm. going through this process. 
it was overall the best way word to use. It is just heaviness. It mm. was just a, it, it was, I don't know. Cause sometimes people will describe depression as heavy and yeah, I went through that depressive episode, but once I was kind of over that, there was still heaviness and it was different than a depression heavy. It was like this thought of like, did I make a mistake? Am I wrong? Am I going to hell? A lot of anxiety, a lot of like, you know, the bodily sensations of like having racing, uh, racing heart randomly, a lot of heart palpitations too. A lot of that. It's real. Yeah. And then, it like, sounds funny because mm-hmm. palpitations is a funny word, yes. but it's real. <laughs> well, and the thing is though, too, and, and like, I don't think a lot of people, and I just had a conversation with someone about this. I don't think that we acknowledge enough about religious trauma. I mean, I don't think we talk about that enough because I know for myself, there was uh, an instance, I don't know, maybe like two or three years after I had left my church where I was still really good friends with some people there. And we always had this sort of annual beach day. And so they were like, okay, let's meet at, let's meet at the church and we'll meet up there and then we'll draw a carpool. And I didn't want to be that person. Like, can we meet up at like the McDonald's? Can we meet up somewhere else? And I was like, I'm just not going to rock the boat. I'll just go. And as I was driving to the location of my old church, I could feel my hands getting sweaty. My armpits were sweating. I was like, I was, my heart was racing. Like everything hurt. And I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, I'm literally on my way to go to the beach. And it wasn't until I parked in the parking lot that I realized it's like, I am in a place. I wasn't in the building, but I'm on the property of an entity that caused me so much harm and it's never been resolved. And that is why I'm having a trauma reaction. Like my body knew where I was going, even though cognitively I knew I was fine and I was safe. My body was like, no, we are not safe. You're in danger. You need to get out of here. And I didn't realize I was sitting in the parking lot. And then once I got in the car with my friends and we drove to the beach, I was fine. I had to put distance between me and that place. And I think that's what has been the biggest thing I've talked to. Like I've had, I have some clients who have also experienced religious trauma and it was like putting distance between them and their church or family members who were kind of toxic about religion and things like that was the most freeing thing for them. They still had the trauma response, but we were able to work through that. But first we had to put the distance there. That makes sense. Cause like, if you're in an abusive relationship, you're not going to go back to the house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you were abused by your parents, you're not going to want to go back to that house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. Like I too have had like similar experiences where I'm just like, I don't want to go mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, mm, no, thank you. And I didn't know why it was just kind of like, ah, it's just, I don't want this feeling. I don't want to be in that room. Yeah. And I think a little bit of it too which we can talk a little bit about if it's something that we share, but Mm -hmm. because I was part of the like music team, I can't listen to Christian music anymore. Mm -hmm. And being in the room during the time that they're sharing and singing together makes me so like nervy. Mm -hmm. Like I just like feel like, I can't breathe. I'm sweaty. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be here. I feel like everyone's staring at me. Yeah. But like, as soon as the music stops, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I can deal with this a little better. Yeah. And like, it, it like happened at work once where like one of my coworkers had like music playing um, from like a well-known, I think it was like Carrie Dove or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to change this. 
I was like, sorry, it's just so, rep- I just like made up an excuse. I was like, it's just so repetitive mm-hmm. and I like know the song, so I can't get any work done and yeah. I changed it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I honestly, it, it probably is because like you were so involved with the worship team as you were and like all of the stuff that like heard stories, all the stuff that goes along with being on a worship team and all the drama and all the clickiness and like all of that. So that makes sense. Yeah. You just like want to belong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, you think it's so, it's just so backwards. Cause like you think that people want to be your friend, but they kind of just want to like check off a box that they brought you to Jesus mm-hmm. or like that they like kept you with Jesus. Like they just want to like put a little tally mark up. Yeah. And yeah, like that feeling of like not being understood. Mm-hmm. I relate with completely. Yeah. And I think there was also a, like a, an extra layer to that too, as like a person of color being mm-hmm. in a predominantly white space and wanting to be accepted in that white space. But then at the end of the day, realizing that would never actually happen. Um, when I made that realization, I think that was also one of like the catalysts of me being like, I, I have to leave. Um, and then realizing there's nothing wrong with me. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just black. Like, that's it. Like it's, this is kind of unrelated, but I joke with my like, sister. Like I'm not ugly. Yeah. Like I'm like, am I, am I, I'm like, am I, am I ugly or am I a black girl who has navigated white spaces her entire life? I'm just, a, I'm just a black girl who's navigated white spaces her entire life. So, you know, like it's in the same vein, it's like, there's something wrong with me. It's just, I was in a place that didn't really want to cultivate my talents or um, help me grow more than I was. I had basic level growth that you expect from a church member, but I didn't have anybody like actively pursuing me to be like, I want you to grow. I want to help you. And like, again, absolutely loved. I sought out, right? Like that was the thing I did. I had to take the initiative and do that. Whereas I watched Mm -hmm. a lot of my counterparts get sought out by people I wasn't. And so that also did Mm -hmm. damage to like, am I not worthy? Like you say that Jesus thinks I'm worthy, but I, but like, I don't feel worthy by you. So. Yeah. Wow. That's so layered, especially where we grew up. Yeah. Like, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just like get these like little small town feelings Mm -hmm. that I'm just like, I don't like it anymore. Yeah. Um, which, like you said, I don't think that people, like, are malicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't think they, like, maliciously were teaching us mm-hmm. that Adam had more <laughs> ribs than <laughs> I think that they just, that's what they thought was true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we are products of socialization and our upbringing. Like, that's really <laughs> it. Mm-hmm. And what you're taught, unless you break the cycle, you just perpetuate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you think it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about like connecting like what we talked about in the beginning, like mm-hmm. with your death anxiety yeah. and then the anxiety of I'm going to hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's been interesting. Um, so I don't think I've ever like actually admitted it to anybody, but mm-hmm. I kind of don't believe in hell anymore. I just don't, I've, you know, in my deconstructing have read a lot about like interpretation of words, 
what certain words actually meant, where they were actually located, how they use a lot of metaphorical language to describe things in the Bible. And in understanding all of that and more, I'm like, is hell real? I don't know. I haven't like settled on an answer yet, but I can say I don't really have, if I have any death anxiety now, it's mostly because am I absolutely sure what happens after death? It's not necessarily because I think there's like a heaven and a hell and I'm going to one or the other. It's more of like, well, what actually happens? And so that's mostly where if, you know, I think everybody experiences like existential dread from time to time. Um, some more than others, I tend to fall into the latter, some more than others. And so when that comes up for me, I'm like, oh no, what's going to happen? And then I have to like go do something <laughs> else to like distract myself. But yeah, I think in doing that research, it's actually helped a lot with that, like with the death anxiety of like understanding these things, because like, you know, grow, if you grow up in the church from a small child, you are taught about hell as a very small child, which is actually awful. <laughs> Um, I shouldn't be like four years old learning that there's like eternal damnation and fiery pits of fire. Did your, did your family talk about end times a lot? My mom is an end times enthusiast still to this day. (laughs) She had Tiffany. I read all 40 left behind children's books when I was in middle school, all 40 of them. They weren't like thick books. They were probably like they're probably like, yeah, like yeah, super yeah. thin, right? But like Magic Treehouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like that size. Yeah. yeah. But there was 40 <laughs> of those jokers. And I read all 40 of them in one summer. And Tiffany, I thought I was going to go out for Jesus. I thought I was going to get my head chopped off. I thought like in the end, I'm not taking the mark of the beast. And like, I was that person. I also thought that I was going to be the person to save my entire school. Like I was also that Christian. So that tells you the level of indoctrinated I was. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, it was to the point where like, I remember I went to a church service one time and it wasn't our church. It was, I went to a black church and the pastor was talking about the mark of the beast. And, and he was talking about like, Oh, it'll either be like on your forehead or in your back of your hand. And I remember I had to be like 10. I went home and I was in the mirror looking for a <laughs> mark. And then I thought I saw one. I, I panicked. I cried because I was like, Oh, no, this oh, is it. No. I'm doomed. You know, and then like, you know, my mom thought she was so funny and she would do things like one time she turned on the stove, like water was boiling, she was cooking and she left clothing on the floor in front of the stove and the TV was on the news, like breaking news and everything was on as if people had been there, but nobody was there. And I freaked out and I remember running around the house, right? It's cruel. Like when I think of it, it's cruel. And I remember her and my sister were hiding on the side of the house and then, you know, whatever. And then like, you know, and even when I was a little bit older, I could so traumatizing. Yeah. Like I would be in the grocery (laughs) store and if I, if it took me a little too long to find my mom, I'd be like, Hmm, did I get left behind? So that goes like, so yes, I, my mom was an end times person and I grew up Uh, with all of that, which is why like, even my sister has her own set of traumas with that. Like she does not mm -hmm. like talking about like anything to do with revelations or end times. We will not talk about it. Any like post-apocalyptic scenario, Mm -hmm. movies, like any kind of conversation, like it's not even like the death part Mm -hmm. or like the, like the rapture part. It's literally like the 
post-apocalyptic world where everything is cruel and like I have that like scene from Left Behind where like the president or something is with like his cabinet and Mm -hmm. like kills them all Mm -hmm. because they like wouldn't like follow him or whatever like that no 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 I can't. I get nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Like to this day, mm-hmm. I can't. Like if anyone's like, oh, I want to watch this movie about like the end of the world. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, but so, so like going back, like when you're taught that as a kid, like, like you see, like these are the repercussions that happen and you have tons of like anxiety about it, about like death and hell and like all these things that you just shouldn't as a kid. Like, I think there's just like topics like that should not be taught to children. Not even like trying yeah. to sugarcoat it. Like it just shouldn't. Yeah. Children should believe that the world is safe mm-hmm. and beautiful and kind and fun. Yeah. Not hell. Yes. <laughs> you shouldn't be like thinking about how everything's going to be like the red sky mm-hmm. and everything's going to be dark. And, yeah. Ooh. Like if I hear so a noise that's a little too loud, I'm like, what's going on outside right now? I know, like Red Dawn. Yeah, <laughs> like they're coming for us. <laughs> That's me. I like. I don't even think of like. Oh, I'm alone. I mm-hmm. like being alone. I would prefer over like wars upon wars yeah. and like. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. ooh, it like I literally the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. Oh, I hate it so much. <laughs> 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 but yeah. Uh, <laughs> back to like your mm-hmm. um, your perspective and like yeah. your processing all of that. <laughs> I wanted, um, yeah, I don't know what I believe about hell anymore, mm-hmm. but I think that part of me is like so scared to like let it go because yeah. I'm like, what if I do end up going to hell? And I like read um, Francis Chan's book. Mm-hmm racing hell yeah and i'm like like indoctrinated in a whole other way yeah because <laughs> he was like yeah so those imaginary words they were literal because <laughs> like, mm. it was in response to rob bell yeah mm. who like he was like all of a sudden satan yeah about mm-hmm. cancel culture yeah like literally they were like no rob bell that's like the original canceled person <laughs> yeah he really was yeah and then they replaced him with Mrs. Chan in those videos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man, wild. I do want to ask a little bit more about um, how you have like gotten to where you are now, like what your perspectives are now. Um, and in your grieving process, if you've made any connections with like how you process things. Mm-hmm. And how you experience them in your body and how you've kind of come to, like, if something happens now, like, what, what, what are your go-tos? Like, what do you feel like your normal processing is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I can probably use an example. Okay, so last summer. So, like, again, I, I'm. I've been gone from my church for like five and a half years now, but last summer I had to make the really, really, really hard choice to cut ties, kind of sever ties with my last remaining friends from my old church, just because, you know, there's 
as the Bible says, there's a season for everything. And that season of having a, a strong connection with them just wasn't there anymore. Um, and so I had to make that decision that I couldn't have people in my life who didn't completely understand where I was coming from, where I was on my way to, um, and who I ultimately just didn't feel supported by. And it was really hard. It was probably, I've never had like a friendship breakup before. And I think in processing that afterwards, I had to figure out like, okay, like what am I feeling right now? Okay. I feel lost. Why do I feel lost? Because I had Deep, I at one point had deep connections with these people and I don't anymore. And I had to go through that transition. And then I had to be like, okay, what do I need to do to support myself right now? And for me, it was anger was a way I supported myself because I, and I recently have told clients this, that like, there are so many feelings that have like a negative and positive connotation to them. And anger has such a negative connotation to it, but anger is so imperative Anger is what causes us to movement. Anger is what pushes us to get things done. And so embracing my anger about the fact that I had to lose these friends allowed me, allowed me to have the momentum I needed to start embracing other friendships who were supportive of me and who understood certain you know, aspects of my identity as a Black woman in America and, um, you know, and understood the pain that I experienced from our church and why I couldn't be a part of that any longer. And so, and it was also movement. So like, you know, the anger pushes us to movement, but also like actively like moving my body and getting that energy out. And so like, again, when I talk to clients, cause there's also negative connotations around exercise for all the right reasons, the way that, you know, the health industry is and stuff like that. But I'm like, you don't have to exercise, you know, you know, like that. It's just moving your body. It could be walking, it could be jogging, it could be dancing, it could be hiking, it could be however you need to move your body, just move it because you got to get that energy out. And so I started doing that. I started doing more active things. I started, personally for me, I like the gym. So I started doing that and using that to get out all of that pent up energy and it helps. And so that was a large part of my processing of the loss of those relationships was that. And so now I've figured out, you know, a year later that when I'm anxious, when I'm trying to process a hard decision, when um, I'm experiencing some kind of loss, I go to the gym, not to mask over it because I still want to figure out what am I feeling and address those feelings and those sensations, but to deal with the pent up energy. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Like it's almost like you're giving yourself I say this when I cry because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a crier. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I, it's almost like you get that clarity from yeah. that little bit of those chemicals. Mm-hmm. So then like after you're done, you can process what you're doing. Yeah. So it seems like it's similar for you when you're exercising. Like you're just mm-hmm. like, it's like a release. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I um, I'm trying to move my body more, but it's okay. <laughs> my, but I'm I want to move my body more because it helps me not hold my breath. Okay. Because when I experience anxiety or depression or like I just feel overwhelmed, I just hold mm-hmm. my breath, and um, then I just like explode. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's it's better to like have that, give yourself that. That's cool. And Definitely. supporting yourself. That's good yeah. language. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So I want to wrap things up so I don't take too much of your time. But well, I like to um, finish off with you sharing a moment that brought you joy recently. A moment that brought me joy. Give me a second. I have to think. Because <laughs> I'm thinking because the only thing I do right now is just work. <laughs> so I'm like, mm-hmm. it's going to probably be work related. Um, you just went honestly, on vacation too. I did go on vacation. It was a little raunchy, but I did go on vacation. Um, <laughs> that brought me a lot of joy because finally being able to like go out and like, I mean, be around people, but then finding out later, Florida's a shit show right now. So there's that. But honestly, I would have to say like the thing that has brought me joy and fulfillment at the same time has to be like uh, one of my clients that I was able to terminate with like and actually have like a really good proper like we, we are at the end. We've, we've prepared for this. How do you feel like you are now compared to where we started months ago and hearing from their perspective, because when I'm working with clients, I have my own assessment and interpretation of how they're doing and how they are moving towards progress and, and ultimately discharge from services with me, but then to actually hear their own words and not that I'm looking for accolades because I think I'm an okay therapist. Like I, I show up, with my clients and I'm there with them, but to hear their perspective of how they have experienced me being with them through some of the hardest times of their life and having the realization of like, Oh, I I guess I am a good therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, like having that realization and because I've terminated with a couple of clients recently, I've had that like happen a couple of times within the last like two weeks where I'm being continuously told this by clients not because I asked them to, but because I'm just like, tell me what's been beneficial. And they're like, you have been beneficial. Mm. So that's been, that's been really good for me. That's beautiful. Wow. Uh, pat yourself on the back. <laughs> you should be so proud. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I'm really proud of them. I like could tear up. That's so incredible. I wonder how, like how you get to the point where you graduate therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. I don't think I'll ever graduate there, but you <laughs> Yeah, that's, wow. Thank you for sharing. You're I, welcome. Yeah, I feel it deep in the pit of my gut. I'm also a little bit weird today because <laughs> I'm a little bit sleepy and I Aww. get weird when I'm sleepy. So uh-huh. sorry to everyone listening and to you <laughs> at, the, at the conclusion of this. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say thank you um, because... I just love hearing you talk. <laughs> if you know Michelle, she's not very talkative. She can be. Mm-hmm. But you complete your thoughts when you're speaking. You don't like trail on and try to take up the room. Um, so what you, when you do speak, it's so valuable and beautiful. Um, and I know that so many people are going to be able to kind of hear this and maybe find a therapist of their own. Yeah. Um, maybe like take into account like being able to move their own bodies or mm-hmm. grieve the loss of their churches. Cause I know mm-hmm. that there's quite a few of us out there. Yeah. Um, and, and embrace your anger. Yeah. yeah. And embrace your anger. Don't run away from it. Yeah. Anger is good. Yeah. Nothing wrong with anger. It's just an emotion. Exactly. Not good or bad. 
I love you. Love you too. Thanks for letting me talk and giving me space to do this. Yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. No problem. <laughs> okay, love you. Bye. Bye. I'm recording this after recording a whole interview that I am so excited about. I'm excited about this interview, but if I jumble up my words, I am sorry. That's just where I'm at right now. I've been talking for like an hour and a half, which is a lot for me. I'm an introvert. Um, and so is Michelle. <laughs> so I hope that you enjoyed our conversation. She and I have been friends for a long time. I'd say our closeness has been on and off, but I'm so happy to have her as one of my people. It's special to have her because every year on her birthday and her death anniversary, we talk to each other and we are there for each other with our mixed feelings, with our celebrations of her life, with our grief from her death, with our grief from all the things that we lost um, in losing her and the future that we lost in losing her. And that is so special to have with someone. So I hope that you all got a better sense of what you would need in grief. Um, How can you better support yourself and your friends? How to think about the people that you've lost how to have those moments with yourself. And um, I hope that you just got a little bit more of a taste of who she was from listening to Michelle talk about her. Yeah, I hope that you have a wonderful day wherever you are. And if you're not having a wonderful day, I hope that you give yourself the grace that you need to get through it. Um, 